With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wise men follow him. They rose again. Wise men follow him. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. You're hearing this on Saturday, October 8, 2016. And today is sunny with a high near 75. Indian summer is what they used to call this. Light and variable wind. Saturday night, mostly clear, low around 49. South wind, 3 to 6 miles an hour. And same thing for Sunday. I don't have it directly in front of me. There we are. Mostly sunny with a high near 59. Northwest wind around 5. Sunday night, partly cloudy, low around 37. And then Columbus Day, sunny with a high near 54. Northwest wind around 7 miles an hour. So we got a beautiful weekend. Three-day weekend, the last one before Thanksgiving. And uh, get out and enjoy it. Go four-wheeling and enjoy the foliage. <clears throat> Visit the apple orchards. Have some hot cider and donuts. And, and uh, just enjoy the beautiful weekend. Gas price in Auburn is two dollars and three cents. That's up two cents from last week. Gas price in Harrison is two dollars and fifty-eight cents. And the leaf papers are out. Tourists are coming north to enjoy our beautiful fall days. Diesel in South Portland is two dollars and nineteen cents, and that's up a nickel. And the diesel is two dollars and sixty-four cents in New Gloucester. We had our apple seed at Monmouth, October 1st and 2nd, as planned. We ended up with uh, uh, nine shooters on the line. We have a capacity of 20, so it's almost half full. But we had quite a we had a, a good shoot, good safe shoot. Made three new riflemen, and that's the goal: is to is to teach the history of what happened on April 19th, 1775 at Lexington and Concord and back to Boston. We sent the Redcoats back to Boston empty-handed because they came out to try to seize our firearms. And you don't do that in this country. You don't do it then. You don't do it now. At Appleseed events, the only politicians we talk about are the politicians that were alive on April 19th, 1775. And we don't talk about current politics. 
during the event. So first and second of last week, we didn't talk about today's politics. But it's pretty easy to infer that if somebody comes down the road and they want to seize our firearms, like some blue-helmeted Belgians or something like that, it's not going to go well for the blue-helmeted Belgians. Because the most dangerous man in the battlefield is the man in the forest with a rifle. You don't line up in rows and oppose the enemy anymore. We found that that was non-productive. And we defeated the Redcoats through various strategic measures. But today is a is an anniversary date. This is recorded on Friday. And on October 7th, 1777, Timothy Murphy, a sniper, a rifleman, did something to change the course of the Revolutionary War. And there were a lot of of events that are regarded as divine providence that occurred during the Revolutionary War. So many amazing coincidences that occurred that benefited the cause of liberty. And Timothy Murphy was the member of General Daniel Morgan's, actually at that time, Captain Daniel Morgan's rifle company. And in order to be a member of Daniel Morgan's rifle company, you had to be able to hit a pumpkin at 250 yards. Well, pumpkins back then, they weren't any 600-pound or 1,000-pound pumpkins back then, like we have at the at the Common Ground Fair, for example, down in Unity in Maine. The pumpkin was about the size of a man's head. And if you couldn't make a headshot at 250 yards with a rifle, you couldn't be a member of Daniel Morgan's rifle company. You had to, uh, you could be a cook while learning and practicing. You could cook for the rifleman, but you couldn't be a rifleman until you could actually do the deed. But there was a running battle for a few days at Saratoga, New York, in early October. And there was a hill there called Bemis Heights. And they had a battle at Bemis Heights. And the Americans held back, the British. And they, they reformed. And the second day, they had what they called the Second Battle of Bemis Heights. General Simon Fraser was riding back and forth up there, firing up the British. And he's, we're going to go get those rebels. And Benedict Arnold was still a good guy. He was still on our side. And he was leading the American troops. So he called down to Daniel Morgan and said, send me your best rifleman. Daniel Morgan sent up Timothy Murphy. Timothy Murphy was born 1751. So in 1777, he was 26 years old. We don't know the exact date of birth, but we know the year. So 26-year-old young Timothy Murphy went up to, reported to Benedict Arnold and Benedict Arnold pointed up there on Bemis Heights, which is the name of the hill. He said, General, that 
man on yonder hill is General Simon Fraser. He is worth an entire regiment. But it is necessary that he must die. And he said, I have the greatest respect for that man, but it's necessary that he must die. Do your duty. Timothy Murphy went over and put the barrel of his rifle on the on the limb of an oak tree and fired. Shot General Simon Fraser right through the midsection. And he uh turn that ringer off. Get that later. So, sorry about that. So, uh, Timothy Murphy, uh, I'm going to do a little, I don't normally read on the show, but Timothy Murphy was one of 500 hand-picked riflemen to go with General Daniel Morgan to upstate New York and help General John Burgoyne in his invading British Army. Help stop General John Burgoyne, Gentleman Johnny. Jim not only helped defeat the British, but he was a major contributor to the victory. As the battles around Saratoga raged, the British, having been pushed back, were being rallied by Brigadier General Simon Fraser. General Benedict Arnold, still a good guy at the time, rode up to General Morgan, pointing to Fraser and shouted, That man on the gray horse is a host in himself, and he must be disposed of. Morgan gave the order for his best marksman to try and take him out. Timothy Murphy climbed a nearby tree, finding a comfortable notch to rest his rifle, and took careful aim at the extreme distance of 300 yards and squeezed off a shot. General Simon Fraser tumbled from his horse, shot through the midsection. And he said, I saw the man that shot me. He was a rifleman. He was taken from the field, and he died the next day. When you're shot through the liver, you're not going to make it back in those days, maybe not today. Another British officer, Sir Francis Clark, General Burgoyne's chief aide-de-camp, galloped onto the field with an important message. Murphy's second shot dropped him. He was dead before he hit the ground. These two unerring shots did more than anything else to shatter the morale of the British and turn the tide of the most important battle of the Revolution. As soon as General Simon Fraser fell, a panic spread among the British lines. It was increased by the sudden appearance of American General Tainbrock and his 3,000 New Yorkers. General Burgoyne personally took command of the area that could not rally his demoralized men. The whole British line caved in, and the men scrambled from the entrenchments around their camp. And they turned, and they went back up into Quebec. These two shots earned Timothy the nickname of Sure Shot Tim. There is no doubt that Timothy Murphy did shoot both Fraser and Clark at 300 yards. Following the battle, Morgan's rifles were sent back to the main army and joined them at Valley Forge. The following spring, when the British evacuated Philadelphia, General Washington led his army in pursuit, catching up to them at Monmouth Courthouse. Tim did not take part in that battle. However, the next day, June 27, 1777, 
Tim and three fellow riflemen captured an elaborate coach belonging to a retreating British general. Shortly thereafter, General Morgan's legendary riflemen were ordered to the Mohawk Valley of New York to help stop the Tory and Indian raids. Murphy tracked down and killed notorious Christopher Service, the Tory leader. He also participated in the action at Unadilla on October of 1778. He and other riflemen assigned to protect the frontier town were pursuing the raiders and sacked the Cherry Valley. They caught up with them at Unadilla and annihilated them. In 1779, Tim's term of enlistment at Morgan's Rifles expired, and he returned to Schoharie, Pennsylvania, and enlisted in Captain Jacob Hager's company of Colonial Peter Vrooman's Albany County Militia. He was scouting with Captain Alexander Harper in the Delaware County Forest during the spring of 1780, and they were ambushed and taken prisoner by the Indians. They were bound and taken to Oquago. During the night, the two men freed each other while 11 Indians slept. They then collected and hid their captors' firearms, then methodically knifed all but one before escaping. During the terrible action at Schoharie Valley, October 15th through 19th, October 1780, Timothy Murphy accomplished his most astounding feat. Sir John Johnson, with a force of between 815 regulars, Tories, and Indians, attacked the valley. About 200 American militiamen, including Murphy, found themselves besieged in Middle Fort. Major Woolsey, the commanding officer, decided to surrender the fort. As he went to pull down the flag, Murphy fired a warning shot. Woolsey tried to haul the flag down a second time, and Murphy fired again. Woolsey ordered Murphy to be arrested, but the majority of the officers and men of the fort sided with Murphy, and surrender and possible massacre was averted. There were a lot of massacres in the Revolutionary War. After a long siege, Johnson gave up, stating it would be too costly for him to continue the attack. As a result of the stubborn resistance led by Murphy, the attack failed and Johnson was forced to return to Canada. Murphy and his rifleman buddies harassed Johnson's force all the way back to Canada. This is a tactic that we use throughout the Revolution. And I'll mention uh, what, what happened on the way back to Boston a little later in this broadcast. Early in 1781, Tim Murphy re-enlisted in the Continental Army and served under General Mad Anthony Wayne, fighting against Lord Cornwallis across Virginia, and finally, when joined by George Washington and his main army and the French, defeated them at Yorktown. Timothy Murphy was married twice. His first wife, Peggy Pleck, who died in 1807, gave him five sons and four daughters. That's ten kids. His second wife, Mary Robertson, gave him four more sons. So Timothy Murphy fired, uh, had had uh, 14 children. And uh, he never learned to read or write. Tim acquired a number of firearms, a number of farms, a grist mill, became a local political leader. He was medium height, dark complexion, and well-built. He died in 1818 from cancer of the neck at the age of 67.
what a fantastic, courageous American. His parents came from Ireland, and uh, he was born here in this country. And uh, what an amazing thing for him, that one man to have done all those accomplishments. And it's, it's partially because he was a rifleman. Riflemen are dedicated. They're highly accurate, very precise. When you can take a, a rifle ball and put it, you know, in a pumpkin at 250 yards, that's an amazing thing. There's a lot of people today that can't take the old 30-30 or, or whatever uh, and hit a pumpkin at 250 yards. 250 yards is uh, is two minutes of angle. Our goal in Appleseed is to teach our students to reliably hit a four-inch square at 100 yards. Now, people talk about one-inch groups. The rifle is capable of shooting a one-inch group from a rest. What we teach is for the rifleman to be able to reliably keep his rounds in a four-inch group at 100 yards. Well, that's eight inches at 200 yards, 12 inches at 300, 16 inches at 400, and 20 inches at 500 yards. So what's 20 inches? Well, it's the distance between the average person's shoulders, his torso. You want to be able to hit, reliably hit a 20-inch square at 500 yards. Well, that's you know that's essentially the, the chest area of a deer. There's not many deer shot at 500 yards. I know a guy that used to sit on the power line, two or three places where the deer would cross the power line, and he'd get a deer every year just sitting there. He had a he had a lawn chair, and he'd sit there at the edge of the tree line, and the deer would come out and wander around, browse across the power line. They didn't they didn't just dash across because they felt that they were in great danger. They just uh, wander across there, and every now and then a good big buck would come along, and boom, he'd drop him. Anywhere from 250 out to 500 yards. And the longest shot this guy ever made was 11 poles down the power line. You take a look at the power line, you look down 11 poles. He shot a deer that far away with a modern rifle, with a scope. But back then... And we had people that were able to be highly effective with rifles. The Germans brought riflery to America from Germany before the Revolutionary War, and the Pennsylvania rifle became became famous. And then uh, riflemen, rifle makers, gunsmiths. Uh, made the Kentucky rifle famous. And then, of course, rifles became famous all over the country. On April 19, 1775, at Lexington and Concord, there were no rifles. But the following spring, at Bunker Hill, there were rifles. And Timothy Murphy's company, or actually Daniel Morgan's company, Timothy Murphy included, were at Bunker Hill with rifles. And that made the difference. 
And when the British first charged up the hill, you know, the Americans told, don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Because that's what a capable, what a musket was capable of. You know, if you could see the whites of their eyes, you'd probably make a hit with a musket. And at Lexington and Concord, and throughout the day on April 19th, 1775, they, uh, both sides had muskets. And many of the Americans had muskets with front sights on them like a bead on a, on a shotgun. And a lot of people can be effective with a shotgun with slugs to a considerable range. The uh, The British manual of arms was make ready, fire. What the average redcoat would do is he'd load his musket, cock it, and when they were told to fire, they'd fire a volley. When they told the fire, he would close his eyes, turn his head to the side, and yank the trigger. The American manual of arms was make ready, aim, fire. Big difference. Captain Isaac Davis of the West Acton Militia had his company at Concord Bridge. He was a blacksmith and a gunsmith and a farmer, and a general civic leader. Most militia captains were elected, and they, uh, he taught his men to aim and fire. So what they would do is make ready, aim, fire. And when he said, when he said fire, the Americans wouldn't turn their head away. They would squint. They could just barely see. The eyes are almost closed, squinting, because they didn't want to get chunks of black powder in their eyes. Most of them did not wear what they called at the time spectacles. Outdoors, spectacles were saved for reading, reading the Bible by candlelight or whatever. They didn't wear spectacles outdoors. And he uh, didn't, didn't want to get the frames rusty, you know, most people didn't have silver frames that didn't rust. Most of the most of the frames were iron. So Isaac Davis had a French Charleville musket. French had front sights on their muskets back in the seventeen fifty five during the French and Indian War. So the the uh I don't know what their manual of arms was, but they had front sights on the front barrel band of their muskets, and they were more accurate. So Isaac Davis made front barrel bands for the old brown vessels, but Isaac Davis's own rifle was a Charleville, made in France. Isaac Davis today lives in Maine. A young man named Isaac Davis the Seventh. Seventh generation from the Revolutionary War has Isaac Davis's musket. I hope to see it someday. I mean, it probably looks like all the other muskets, not too fancy, but it's still in the family. And I know a guy who has seen the musket and held it in his hands. What a thing that would be. 
But we're connected to our our heritage, and we're trying to keep that heritage heritage alive with Project Appleseed. Last weekend, we had a bunch of people, some had virtually no experience with a firearm. We started out with the safety factors, the safety rules. Always keep your muzzle in a safe direction. And then we we put up a target and let the let them bang away at it with no instruction. And we look and see how how they do. Some people are are you know reasonably accurate. Some people don't hit the paper. Okay, well, there's a problem there. We've got to find out what's causing that. Some people have brand new rifles that have never been sighted in. They've never. We get people that have never fired a firearm before, ever, in their whole life. Everybody has to have eye protection. Everybody has to have hearing protection, whether it's phone earplugs or earmuffs or whatever. I have a set of ear, earphones. They're electronic, and they amplify sound, which seems to be a contradiction, but it really isn't because... You could hear people talking, and uh, yet when the rifle goes off, it shuts off instantaneously. And as soon as the sound drops down below the cutoff point, it comes back on. You don't even realize it. And uh, it's it's an amazing thing for, some, for an electronic device. When it hears the bang, it shuts off, and you don't hear it. And then it comes right back on again in a thousandth of a second or whatever. And you got a volume control on it. And what I like about mine is if you, if you forget to turn it off, it turns itself off after four hours. So if you take your earphones off, put them in your shoot bag, go back to the truck, next time you go to use them, you, know, you don't have dead batteries. It's ready to go. I had my one set of batteries in my earphones for four years. And I finally decided to change them out just because I didn't want them to corrode in there or something. But it's... uh trying to think of the name of them. I, I would give the, the maker a plug if I could think of the name of them. It's somebody's Howard Late. Howard Late. It's spelled L-E-I-G-H-T. Probably a French name. But uh, that's the brand name of these earphones. And they're available in various colors. They used to, they used to be all olive drab for the military. But my, uh, my, I broke, my wife broke hers, and uh, I bought her a new set, and they're blue. They come in multiple colors. You can tell whose is whose on the firing line. But they're the... I think they're probably the most popular earphones on the line. So Rifleman made the decision and determined the outcome of numerous battles down through history. And there was a Rifleman from Tennessee who was a conscientious objector. He did not want to shoot people. He didn't want to kill people. He was a very religious man. But he wanted to he wanted to serve his country, so 
when he was called, he went and served in, in World War One, And his name was Alvin York. And his... There were some German machine gunners that were really dominating the battlefield at one moment in time. And he sneaked up around around the end of the enemy's flank, got up into the woods, and he had a Springfield, bolt-action rifle, 30-06. And he started firing into the German line. And they all ducked down their trenches. Somebody would pick up his head, bam! He'd shoot the German. Man, shoot another German. And he shot a lot of Germans. And finally, they surrendered. They hoisted a white flag, and he captured about 120 Germans, marched them over to the U.S. lines. And he distinguished himself through his marksmanship uh, throughout the war. And he became famous in lots of uh, newspaper articles written about him. And when he came back to Tennessee, the townspeople in his town had built him a house for he and his bride. Uh, they just said, this is your house. He said, what do you mean? I can't afford a house like that. And he said, we built it for you. And he, through his marksmanship, he had saved many lives. I mean, how many how many Americans would that 120 Germans have killed in the course of the war, you know, when they were captured? Like Harry Truman. Harry Truman made the decision to drop the atomic bomb on the Japanese. And by doing so, he saved millions of lives, or certainly hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides. Because if we had invaded the main island of Japan, it, you know, it would have been a tremendous task to to take it and hold it. But once we had the atomic bomb and dropped it, we told them, surrender. And they said, no, we're not going to surrender. And they said, we're going to surrender with terms. You know, we're going to tell you what's going to happen here if we have a truce. And he said, no, unconditional surrender. That's it. Unconditional surrender. Well, we're going to drop another one. We may not have had a third one at that time. I just don't know that. But we had two different ones. We had different designs in case the first one didn't work. Because we didn't know. You know we, had, we had detonated one in Utah at the top of a tower. It's a National Historic Monument today. You know, they have all kinds of different monuments around the country to commemorate things. They even made a monument out of Roxanne Quimby's cut-over woodlot. You know, you never, you can't, you can't predict what, what Washington's going to do. It's the silly season. Election time is always a silly season in Washington, D.C. We have a monumental decision to make on November 8th, which is one month from tomorrow. Well, one month from today. You're hearing this on October 8th. So one month from October 8th is our election. It is hugely important 
Because if we lose the Senate and we lose the presidency this time around, we're going to have the Senate will confirm all of Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court nominees. Think, this is the six scariest words that I know of in the English language. Supreme Court Justice Barack Hussein Obama. He's not leaving Washington. He has no plans to move anywhere else. He's got himself a house in the Washington, D.C. area, and he's planning to stay. And he's planning to be a Supreme Court justice, along with the other four or five that Hillary's going to get to name, because these guys are old guys. And ladies. Two ladies on there. And as soon as she gets elected, these folks are going to start to retire if she gets elected. We patriots in this nation cannot let that happen. We've got to elect Donald Trump. He's not the best candidate we've ever had. But the Republicans keep putting up marginal candidates. I'm trying to be charitable here. But they put up John McCain. Millions of people in this country would not vote for John McCain. Just, just wouldn't. I'm not going to disparage John McCain. He was a Navy pilot. I was a Navy pilot. But there's a million, lots of people would never vote for John McCain because of his record in politics. I respect his his service. He graduated from the Naval Academy, became a naval aviator, and served his country. Then we had Romney. Romney's uh, father or grandfather, somebody in the family, went down to Mexico because they wouldn't let him have more than one wife in this country. And back at that, at that time, the Mormons had multiple wives. Wives. This is not recent. This is you know, more than 100 years ago, but that was a common practice at that time. So, and Romney was the father of Romney here in Massachusetts, which was the first big... 100% government takeover of the medical profession, medical business, if you will. Medical profession is a business, like many other businesses. And they're in it to make a living for their family, pay off their college debts, and you know, and do good for people. I mean, I'm a big fan of doctors and EMTs and paramedics, and I think they're all underpaid, in my opinion. But it should be run by supply and demand. We have an awful lot of good-hearted people. I never got paid to be an EMT. I was an EMT, became an advanced life support EMT before they had paramedics. And I was a volunteer. I would get called out at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's like the old Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker says to his wife, I'm having the big one. You know, he'd have a little chest pain from from angina, or angina, as some people say. His family would run around, give him some aspirins or something, he'd come out of it. But 
you know, EMTs, volunteer firemen in small country towns do some remarkable things. They save people's houses. They save people's property. They save lives. They help the injured. When you're an EMT, you meet people when they're at their worst, when they're sick, when they're wounded, when they're dying. Some people are dying. You help ease their ease their pain and give them a chance they would not otherwise have had, but it's their time. It's their time. You can't save them all. Some people, you know, have a hard time when they become an EMT to cope with that. You know, this person is going to die. You make them comfortable and you hold their hand. and You know, sometimes that's all you can expect. When it's your time to go, the best thing to have is some family and friends around you. And more and more, when you read, when you read the uh, obituaries in the paper, that you know, old Henry has passed away and surrounded by his family and his friends. What more can you ask when it's your time to go? It's gonna happen. It happens to everybody. Tell a story about uh, about a Civil War. I mean, Revolutionary War. Individual named Samuel Whittemore, seventy-four years old. Sam went out, and on holidays he'd go out to these uh, festivals that they used to have before the Revolutionary War. Sam, where did you get that beautiful musket? I got it from a French officer that didn't need it anymore. Man, where'd you get those two beautiful pistols? Got them from a French officer that didn't need them anymore. Sam, where'd you get that beautiful sword? Got it from a French officer that didn't need them anymore. Or didn't need it anymore. And Sam got up on a little knoll, looking right straight down the road where there's a bend in the road. And when the when the red coat column was coming back to Boston, he fired at the column. Bam! You fire down a whole column of men, you're going to hit one of them, maybe two, because those 75 caliber lead balls often go through two men. So he fired, bang! Down goes the red coat. Fired a pistol, drops the red coat. Fired the other pistol, drops the red coat. They sent what they called flankers, a small squad of men charging up there and shot Sam. The round went through his cheek, ripped off part of his ear, and down he went. So he was laying there, and the women were coming along after. Oh, by the way, they bayoneted him 13 times, by the way. Shot in the head, bayoneted it 13 times. And the women were coming along following the column, and they were tending to the wounded on both sides. You know, they'd, they'd help a colonial or they'd help the red coat. And all these red coats were unable to follow their column back to Boston, and they never did get back to Boston. You know, they lived out their lives in Massachusetts. So they uh the ladies picked Sam up 
put them on a door or a plank or something and brought them down across the road to to Dr. Tuff's house. And Dr. Tuff took one look at this man who half his face ripped off and, and uh, bayonet wounds all over the place. And, and uh, he said, I can't help this man. You take him off and make him comfortable. I, I can't make it. He's not going to make it. So he took him down to another house those old ladies knew what to do. They were all, you know, middle-aged or older, and they knew what worked and what didn't work. They weren't physicians, but they applied poultices and ointments and salves and bombs and compresses to stop the hemorrhaging. And Sam lived. Samuel Woodmore lived another 18 years and got to tell his story many times. I think it's important for veterans to tell their stories. You don't get up in front of a crowd of people and and brag. But, you know, we're a living part of history. I served in the military and uh, had a lot of adventures and uh, came back all in one piece, never got wounded, don't have a purple heart, didn't want one. And uh, But an awful lot of people came back, and they're disabled. I have a I have disability, if you will. I, well, I've lost a lot of my hearing. And I wear hearing aids. And... Uh, I wouldn't be able to function in society without them, unless there was some loudspeaker right beside me. And I try to get near the radio or near the loudspeaker. But I have a big hearing deficit. When I first got my hearing aids, I drove up from Togus up to Lincoln. I stopped in an office in Lincoln and was talking with a guy out in the parking lot. And all of a sudden, I quickly turned my head and he says, "What? What is?" What's this, you know? I said, I just heard water splash for the first time in 20 years. The car drove through a puddle and I heard the splash. And I was startled by it. And I had not heard water splash for 20 years. That's what hearing aids will do for you. And if you have a hearing deficit, go get them checked. And uh, they'll tell you what they can do and what they cannot do. What I hear 24 hours a day, if I'm thinking about it, is like a compressed air hose. Some people hear hear musical sounds like chimes and dings and dongs. The nature of my tinnitus, which is sounds that are not real, it's generated due to the damage in your ears. And Inside of your eardrums, you've got these little tiny hair follicles that uh, that pick up sound and amplify them. And they're nerve endings, and they transmit the sound to your brain, and you hear. That's how your ears work. And the, the eardrums are like the the uh, like a microphone. So, but when you damage your hearing system, you know. You you hear things that aren't there. 
And what I hear sounds like air coming out of a compressed air hose, this loud hiss. 24 hours a day. If I'm not thinking about it, I don't hear it. Like right now, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> so I hear it. But I'll be doing something and, and uh, not without my hearing aids on. And there's a lot of things that I miss. I don't hear birds. I don't hear leaves rustling. And I don't hear deer walking in the leaves. But with hearing aids, you can. I was down behind the house two years ago, and last day of deer season, and sitting up on a knoll, looking down across this open hardwoods and softwoods and a brook, and I heard the brook splash, and a doe came walking out. I didn't have a doe tag. Brook splashed, and deer can't jump across the brook. they got to jump in the brook and back out again. So a second splash, and the second doe walked out. Stopped, looked around, continued walking along. Third splash. Buck came walking out. Six-pointer. Bam, dropped him. The does ran off. Went and got my neighbor, young fella, and uh, he helped me drag it up the road. But without hearing edge, it wouldn't have heard the splash. And but. As I was thinking about it, I just recently gotten hearing aids when I heard that. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't have time to take the hearing aids out and stick them in my pocket. If I do take them out, they might squeal. <laughs> so I just fired the 308, my father's 308. I keep that uh, kind of a family heirloom. My son will get it after me. But when I fired the 308, what I heard was shock, shock. Just like when you rack the bolt and put a round in. I didn't hear the bang. I felt the recoil and heard the shock, shock of the bolt, but there was no bang, which startled me. But my hearing aids turned off and came right back on again quickly enough to hear that bolt. Go shuck, shuck. It's like a 12-gauge. I've got a Model 12 Winchester slide action or pump. And if you have an intruder around and you rack that shuck, shuck, (laughs) they know that there's a loaded shotgun right there. And usually the intrusion comes to a quick end by whatever means is necessary. Usually the person will decide to depart, which is the best course of action for everybody involved. Our job in Project Appleseed is to create riflemen to help people reconnect with their heritage. And we have the flyer that the Colonials printed. We have the actual flyer, the original, as printed in 1775. And the title is Bloody British Butchery, or The Flight of the Regulars. That's the title. It's a long thing. It's a 
tremendous amount of print on one sheet that's about 14 by 20 inches, I would guess. And there's a huge amount of data in there. The youngest, the youngest colonial soldier killed on April 19th was 14 years old. He was a son of a, of a militia captain. He went with his father into the battle, and he was killed. His father was was not wounded. What a what a loss for that family. The youngest British soldier killed was a fifer. And they had a fife and drum accompanying the soldiers. We often did, too. There's a famous painting of, Ameri- of a bunch of American colonial soldiers. They're all older men, and they've, they've got a fife and drum. And uh, it, it, having a fife and drum on the battlefield <clears throat> rallied the troops. And there are pictures of of a of a soldier carrying a flag. He didn't have a he didn't have a musket. He had the flag, and he led led the charge. He followed the flag, and this soldier is shot, and he's falling, and another soldier catches the flag, and continues forward. It's a famous painting, and I when I read the names on. April 19th, or the closest weekend to it, of those men that first fell. I get a little emotional because I served with such men back in Vietnam. Those men, young men, left their families behind and went to serve their country. My door runners were 19 or 20 years old. Some of them were 26 or 28 years old. But most of them were young guys in their first first enlistment. They became door gunners. It wasn't easy to become a door gunner. They were all volunteers, just as the pilots were. And it took some intensive training to learn to do this, because the worst thing you can do is shoot one of the friendlies. You don't want to shoot your own troops. You get up there in a helicopter that's vibrating and shaking and screaming. It makes a lot of noise. You got the engine noise, you got the noise of the rotor blades and the tail rotor blades, and you got the noise of the transmission. The helicopter's been described as an oil leak surround, <coughs> surrounding thousands of spinning parts. Well, there are. <laughs> inside the helicopter, inside that transmission, there's a whole lot going on. The engine turns at 23,000 RPM. And it goes into a reduction gearbox, and the output shaft turns at 6,000 RPM. And that that gearbox shaft, called the short shaft, goes into the transmission. And it reduces it from 6,000 RPM to 344 RPM for the main rotor. So it goes from 6,000 to 600 and almost half again. So that's 15 to 1 reduction in that, uh, is that right? Yeah. 344 RPM is the rotor RPM of a Huey, in case anybody should ever ask you. All Huey pilots know this. <laughs> anyway, these young guys maintained those Hueys. 
And when the mission was over, we refueled, we taxi into into the revetment, which is a kind of an armored C-shaped area where you land the helicopter. So when the mortar rounds hit the ground, it protects the Huey against damage. But, you know, when you walk out to a pilot, out to a helicopter here in the U.S., you know, you, you give it a, a once-over. Make sure that it looks right. And everything that's there, you know, everything that should be there is there. And uh, look at all. We look for oil leaks and lots of little things. They call it a pre-flight. In a combat situation, your pre-flight is more intense. You're looking for bullet holes and shrapnel holes where some chunk of flying metal has slammed into the helicopter, ripped through, and once it got in there, where did it go? What did it do? Did it hit hydraulic lines, fuel lines? Did it hit electrical wires? You know, you turn it up and something doesn't work. Was that a routine mechanical failure or is this a, you know, caused by, by, you know, bullets hitting the helicopter? An awful lot of Hueys, you see. You look up at Millinocket, there's a Huey, Huey on a stick at the VFW. And there's patches, little square patches, about an inch square with a rivet in each corner. Those are put there because of bullet holes. It just covers up the bullet hole. Sometimes you just tape them up and say, yep, you know, this, we check this out and it's okay. Huey will fly with a lot of holes in it. But these, uh, these young men in... 1775, 20th Maine at Gettysburg, Mexican Revolution, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Grenada, the Dominican Revolution, lots of places all over the world, Iraq, Afghanistan, who knows where next? Depends on who gets elected. But we've got this election coming up one month from the day you're hearing this, November 8th. I went to the rally in Augusta last month, put on by Franklin Graham. Billy Graham's son has taken over that ministry. Good man, dedicated, faithful man. And the last two elections, a whole lot of Americans did not vote. They certainly weren't going to vote for for uh, John Kerry or Al Gore, but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for the the Republican candidate, John McCain or Mitt Romney just couldn't bring themselves to do it you know, because they regarded this as evil. Well, sometimes you have to suck it up and vote for the lesser of two evils. And the greatest evil 
that we have had ever to run for president of the United States is Hillary Rodham Clinton. This is one corrupt, evil person. We can't have it. We just can't let that happen. I talked to a guy yesterday who was a confirmed liberal, and he is not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. He may not vote. But the only way to beat her, you have to you have to consider that the state of Maine voted for Barack Hussein Obama twice. Before he ran the first time, we knew what he was, and we knew what he would do, and he did it. And we know what Hillary was. We know what Hillary is, and we know what Hillary will do. She told us what she'll do. She wants to eliminate the ownership of private firearms. And in order to do that, she's going to have to call in the U.N., and we have a bunch of blue-helmeted troops going house to house. There's an awful lot of people are going to get killed on both sides. They're going to kill a lot of Americans. They're going to kill a whole lot of blue-helmeted UN troops, whether they're from Uganda or Belgium or Russia or Iran. They're going to be here in this country if she gets elected. An awful lot of people are not going to survive that. And it's going to be the second American Revolution. We had a revolution the first time they tried to confiscate our firearms, and we we had a civil war over states' rights. And at Appomattox, by the way, that's just happened. The anniversary of Appomattox is just last week. Appomattox Courthouse. And it was actually, it was going to be at the courthouse, but it was in such bad shape that it was actually held in a private residence where General Lee went in and presented his sword to General Grant. General Grant looked it over, accepted the surrender, and gave Lee back his horse, his sword. And Lee got to keep his horse, traveler. Beautiful horse. Strong horse. And courageous horse, I mean, Traveler, uh, was in a lot of battles, and, and Lee was, you know, right up at the battle line in a number of those battles. And we had a bunch of American generals that weren't that good, but Grant, Grant was a drunk, but he was a good general, got the job done, like other generals that weren't popular with the with the general population. But Grant got the job done. And Grant told the the Greycoats, the Confederates, you keep your horse, you keep your rifle. You're going to need it. Take it home. You can use it to hunt. You can use your horse on the farm. You're still Americans. And you need to keep your rifles. Ladies and gentlemen, we're still Americans, and we need to keep our rifles. We need to learn how to use them. We need to learn how to use them safely and appropriately. It's a life skill, like learning to swim. 
I'm making a pitch for apple seed here. Everybody should know how to swim. You don't have to be a competition swimmer, but you should know how to swim because it can save your life. Your vehicle goes into the river or the lake somehow or whatever. Well, you simply fall out of the canoe. You should learn how to swim. You should learn how to safely handle firearms and be proficient in their use. It's a life skill that can save your life. Coming up on the end of the hour, we started a few minutes late because of the technical hiccup. So I don't know if we're exactly at 60 minutes because I didn't start the timer. But this is where we are. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscious Maine. Brought to you today on WXME 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston. 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Today is Saturday, October 8th, 2016. Enjoy the gorgeous weekend and think. Franklin Graham in Augusta, when he had that rally with hundreds of Mainers there on the on the Capitol ground, on the Capitol Mall, would go along and he's talking about uh, civic responsibilities and how we can participate in government. He encouraged people to run for school board, planning board, city council, mayor, you know, take an active role in our governance. And, you know, Christians should do that. Too many Christians are passive. Boy, they're not passive down south, I'll tell you. I've lived down there when I was in the military. They are not passive. They are active. So, as he was going along and encouraging people, he'd pause and he'd look over the crowd and he'd yell, Vote! at the top of his lungs. And he'd go along and he'd preach a little and quote scripture and then he'd yell, Vote! People, get out and vote. It will save our nation. Literally. If we don't vote, we'll lose it. And that's a fact. Be safe and God bless. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lions they With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.